In this episode of Desert Island Horror, we have the Zuchut of speaking to Rabbi Eliezer Rubin, principal at Ray Kushner Yeshiva High School. Rabbi Rubin began his career in Israel where he studied at Yeshivat Merkaz Harav before receiving smicha from the chief rabbin of Israel. In addition to teaching many young men and women at Yeshiva and seminary for their gap year, he served as an officer in Sahal and as a chaplain of the renowned 13th Brigade known as Golani. He previously served as headmaster of the lower and middle schools at Ramaz and dean of upper school. He gave shirim at Congregation Kehlat Yashirim in New York and has two master's degrees in administration and leadership from NYU as well as Jewish studies from Toro. Thank you so much Rabbi Rubin for joining us today. It's a real zuchut to have you with us. Thank you. It's a privilege and a pleasure to be with you today. So it's Desert Island Torah, three pieces of Torah that you would take to a desert island. What do they mean to you? Why are they so important to you? Really looking forward to learning and finding out your three pieces. So if we jump right in, should we go with your first piece? So thank you. I interpreted the idea of three pieces of Torah as meaning three different books or three authors. Um, I take a lot of inspiration from uh, the authors uh, or books that uh, guide our lives and seem to be uh, prescient uh, in the way they uh, are, are look They look through the centuries and at the same time are always relevant and they're always resonant in every generation. Uh, so the first one that, as a book, as an author, as a person that I would go with me, you know, kind of borrowing the theme from Rabbi Salvechik, that when you have a book in your hand written by a sefer, you know, written by a hand in your hand, written by someone who has such great import and such great contributions to the Jewish people, you can actually feel the presence of the person with you when you're studying that sefer. Um, so for me, carrying a sefer, learning one of the great traditional sources is so much more than just acquiring knowledge, and it's more than literacy. It's also an, an form of engagement with that person. And the more you understand about the author, the more that you can begin to channel that author's thinking into kind of the everyday challenges of life or to help form and formulate uh, the vision and the frame of the way things should be. And it's really important for Jewish people to always think about what we are and what we should be. I've always said that before I get to the books about that's why Luchot Vashivri, Luchot Munachiv Yachad and the Aaron is that when after the Aaron, after the Luchot were broken, the broken pieces and the full pieces of the new Luchot were both together. So the whole Luchot and the broken Luchots live together in the same Aaron to demonstrate that the, when the, there is a reality of the second set of Luchot, but there's an aspiration of what the Luchot should have been for the Jewish people. And when we live with both aspirational Judaism at the same time of contemporary realistic Judaism, we can always look to go with next level and not become complacent and satisfied with where we are. And being being a little bit too complacent or too smug about the, the accomplishments always prevents innovation and change, and it really takes and it becomes uninspiring. And that's why I think it's so important to get to know these authors. If you get to know them, you can not only get inspired by what the words that they wrote, but also by who they were and what they wrote and the contemporary time that they lived in and how they managed their own difficulties and how they overcame their own challenges. And the third book is is more of a generic book I'll get to in the end, that it's just about, it just defines us uh, in so many different ways. So the first one I would take with me, and maybe you've heard this before, and I'm sorry, I know there's a lot of wonderful scholars and thought leaders who have been on your podcast. The, uh, so it could be that this is uh, redundant for the listeners, is the Ramban. Uh, Ramosha ben Nachman, uh, better known as Nachmanides in English, uh, was a, 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 lived in a time where there was a significant amount of persecution. Uh, 
He was forced to debate Pablo Cristiani. It was a lose-lose situation in the church because winning would have meant banishment and maybe even death. Losing would have meant uh, on a theoretical uh, level, it would have meant that it was um, kind of creating this image of the inferiority of of Torah or the lack of veracity and truth compared to Christian theology. Ramban went for the former. Uh, He he was able to be victorious in this debate with Pablo Cristiani, went to exile and moved to the land of Israel. And we have some of his musings, some of his reflections as he gets to Israel about not having a minion and writing to his son. But taking moving that out of the context of who he was and, and what kind of challenges he had, his, his books on the Chumash, the Perush on the Torah, is so seminal that it impacts almost every aspect of Jewish life. So I'm gonna give you a few different examples why I think the Ramban's Perush on the Chumash is such a, an important work for all of us to read. And my introduction to it was quite by accident. Uh, my first job out of, after graduating Merkaz Arav uh, was in the yeshiva. I was looking for a part-time teacher and asked if I can give a class on Ramban al Torah on a weekly parsha. Of course I could, which I absolutely was not at all equipped to do with. I've never really studied the Ramban in depth. I didn't have the background of, of running the exegesis as the Ramban presented it. But I went home very quickly and became a study of the Ramban. Um, and since then, in my earliest years of post-yeshiva, it's still been a book that walks and goes with me in every aspect of my thinking of Torah. So the Ramban was interesting because on one hand, he was he was he he, he was passionate about Pshat, just understanding the verses themselves on the on the level in which they're written. He didn't use midrash. Uh, as um, as a way of launching into a new understandings of what the Chumash was trying to say. He really looked at the words of the Chumash to try to understand what the Chumash was saying. And he would use the words of Chumash to create this exegetic model of developing uh, themes that were uh, that were transcendent through different parshiot. And when you see one of the earlier commentaries looking at Parshiot of the Chumash, not just as an individual isolated situational interpretation, but Parshiot that then could be cross-connected to different themes around either the same personas, particularly in Bresh and Shemot, but even to other books, it becomes quite significant and important to learn it in a holistic way. Just a couple of examples. For instance, the Ramban uh, was never was never hesitant. He was never reticent to to criticize the Avot. And that's an important aspect today because when we try to uh, iconize and idealize and um, the 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 Avot and the Imaot in the Chumash, then we'll never, as Rav Shem Hurst says, we'll never be able to learn from them because they're flawless. And if they're flawless, they're not human. If they're human, there's no lessons we can take. And the Ramban, not knowing that Rav Shem Hurst would say that hundreds of years later, in, included all of that in his interpretation. So when he's speaking, let's say, about Abraham and Sarai in the years that uh, Hagar was banished, uh, he criticized Sarah and Abraham uh, for being so um, insensitive to Hagar. And he included in uh, his commentary the consequence that Abraham would face in later years for not demonstrating sensitivity to Hagar when, when Sarai was having, was having tension with her. But then later on, when the second incident of Sarai and Hagar came up, well, then it was Sarai and Hagar, Abraham, um, Ramban explained very clearly what was involved and what was at stake. And he was able to pivot in, in a very realistic, very human way, why the first case was mistaken and ill-informed by Abraham and Sarai, and why the second case was one which was so 
important for them to understand why it was the right decision to make. Obviously, the Chumash says, we know that that, but that was what the Ramban had really commented. And, and I, I can't say he was the first, I'm not a scholar of biblical studies and looking at all of the different generations and the centuries of Parsha and of exegesis, but it's, it's, it, it's so important to understand how the Torah unfolds in ways that it could be instructional for the reader. Um, he writes about Yaakov Avinu and about his struggles with Esau and talks about in prophetic terms how the the Maisa Avot Simon Levanim is what happens to the, the Avot was then going to be indicative to the future generations, which was he really created that as almost as a given with understanding a, a biblical exegesis. So he took himself out of the realm of the situational story, and then he put the stories way into the future. And it, it, he did it with, he was very bold, and he was very, and he was very confident about it. So if he would write, for instance, about uh, Yaakov and Esav, he would look back and he would say the, how Yaakov, it was indicative of so much of the suffering of the hands of, at the hands of the angel, of the Jewish people would be suffering by the hands of persecution. And he goes into a, a descriptive analysis, how they're similar. Another instance where, the, where Ramban looks into the future, Ramban says by Abahalotcha, um, by uh, by the by um, uh, the, the end of Nasso, all of the different Nasi and the prince, the presidents of each tribe, the heads of each tribe had their own sacrifices. And um, then obviously Aaron was missing. The next parsha is by Hibalotra So when Aaron was given the opportunity to light the candles in the menorah, Rashi says he was commenting on the fact that they were not included in the end of the dedication of Parsha Nasso of the Mishkan. So Nasso is the dedication of the Mishkan. Aaron is missing. Aaron was saddened. Balotcha comes and Aaron is included. And that's how Rashi says, that's why there's a juxtaposition between Balotcha and Nasso. But the Ramban says that the, 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 the message here was not that Aaron was saddened and then he was comforted. The message is that Aaron would have the, uh, Aaron's children would have the resolve and they would have the inspiration and they would have the gumption to one day kindle the menorah at a time where the menorah would be extinguished. And of course he was talking about Hanukkah. And the comfort was not that he was able to light the menorah in the Mishkan, because as Ramban says, he had all of the karbano. Why would that bring him comfort? Because he had the generations of ownership and responsibility in the Beit HaMikdash. The comfort he got was that his generations in the future would be leading the way by lighting the light during a time of darkness. And the Ramban has one more that I want to share with you that I think is so prescient. And his, this, his strength of using the words of the Chumash to foretell what, and foreshadow what could be for the Jewish future was one which was not retrospective, which was actually prospective. They, and the Parsha B'chukotai, the Torah tells us that the, the heavens will turn into barzel, into lead. And, and, the, and the punishment of the Jewish people will be such that we won't have any rain. Ramban writes it in B'chukotai, he says that is indicative of the future of the Jewish people and its connection to the land of Israel. And he continues, and he said, as long as the Jewish people are exiled from this land, the land will be barren, it won't have rain, it won't be able to give for, off its produce. If no one will be able to settle it, it will remain unsettled, the Ramban says, until the Jewish people return to the land of Israel. 
Remember, when the Ramban came to Israel during those early centuries, there was no Jewish sovereignty, no strong Jewish foothold. In fact, he didn't even have a minion on Yom Kippur as he complains to his son. And yet he looked at the Parsha and he was able to look forward and say, this is a temporary situation because when the Jewish people return, the land of Israel will return with it. And that's why there's so much of the Ramban is an inspirational figure. And I want to come back to that in a moment because he gave contemporary and future relevant, resonant interpretations of so many aspects of Chumash. Tan Sipur, he says that he gave us all of the understanding of Tameh HaMitzvot, the reasons behind mitzvot, because people would actually, like the Rambam, actually explain that there are explicit, uh, defined reasons behind mitzvot. Ramban says that mitzvot are, are, that will never change. The commandment will remain immutable. No aspect of the mitzvah will ever be able to become altered, but will change from generation to generation is how we look at the mitzvah and how we gain from them, how we get inspired by it. So Khan Sipur in, in, could teach us about environmentalism, even though the Torah doesn't teach me directly about environmentalism in that week's partial, at least it does in Bereshi, because the mitzvot themselves remain static, but the interpretations are dynamic. And that duality that the Ramban injected into understanding 613 mitzvot means that the mitzvot themselves will always be resonant and, and, and responsive to the needs of every generation. And I tell my students that my great-great-great-great-grandfather who lived in, 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 uh, in, in Lancet, or they lived in, um, uh, or, or they go all the way back into uh, the, the different towns of, of Rupchitz, and they looked at Shabbos in one way, because that's the life that they had. Shabbos meant something to them, different in a modern society with all these electronic devices that are intruding in our lives. But the way that we are observing Shabbat with Bishul is the same way that my great-great-great-great-grandparents observed Shabbat and Bishul back in their generation in the communities that they lived in. The mitzvah doesn't change, but the interpretation and the meaning and the processing and the internalizing of the mitzvah could change from generation to generation. And that's why that is such an important book for me, because I think that the world and culture is constantly changing. And we're, we are confronted with so many um, challenges to uh, community and to personal agency and this, the sense of res personal responsibility. And we, it's not just that we have to have the answers for them. We have to get inspired by our belief in and our commitment to Torah mitzvot. And to me, the Ramban is one of those great sources. I can read it over and over again. And I want to use that as a segue to the next uh, the next person, the next great person in history, and the next set of books. Uh, the Ramban had a, 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 an um, unqualified love for Eretz Israel. Uh, all of what we know today about mitzvah issue of Eretz Israel, the mitzvah to live in the land of Israel, actually is sourced in the Ramban. People don't realize it, is that the Ramban's interpretation of the Pasuk, the Ramban writes, you should inherit the land and live in it, it is a mitzvah in the Torah to live in the land of Israel. He writes that as a response to the Rambam, Maimonides' book of mitzvot, which doesn't codify living in Israel as a positive commandment. So the Ramban looks at the book of mitzvot 
and adds that as one of the 613, obviously has to move on, and we move one out, we get 614. And the Ramban demonstrates, looking at so the, the concepts of Eretz Yisrael, why it's a mitzvah to live in Israel. Now, that started off in those years, and it's it's, it's actually, it appears also um, in commentary on Shas, that there was a, a, there was gentle pushback on that. They really there was really one source that's included in our books that lived not soon after the Ramban and Oas Farm, but it really went uncontested. It doesn't necessarily mean it was always included in everyone else's canon of mitzvah. But what the Ramban did is he explained that Eretz Israel is at the center of uh, a, a kind of Jewish Torah life. What what people what perhaps we don't recognize today is that religious Zionism that was started to find its expression in the late 1900s reflects the teachings of the Ramban that was 700 years earlier, because what religious Zionism believes and writes expressed by many generations of great religious Zionist Torah scholars is that living in Eretz Israel is not just having a, a house or an apartment, it's translated and it's, it's, it, and it's, it, it's, it's extended to sovereignty into the land of Israel. Because if you're living in the land of Israel, but you're not Bahurashtim, Bahurashtim, you can own it, but Yeshiva also means ownership and control. So a sovereign Jewish nation living in Jewish land is the ultimate expression of the mitzvah of harashtim et vishaftim There are aspects of it. People can own apartments and they can be fulfilling that aspect of the mitzvah. And you can visit the land of Israel, but in order to really manifest the true sense of the mitzvah, it has to be inheritance and sovereignty in the land of Israel. That idea, in the way it was expressed, was formulated by Rabbi Abraham Yitzchak HaKohen Cook. And Ravon Yitzchak Cohen Cook had several agenda when it came to the land of Israel. The first is the Ramban, and looked at the land of Israel as the central motif of so much of Judaism, without getting into all of the, the detailed proof texts that where the Ramban, where Rav Cook writes it and where he got it from. And he also saw in the pioneering efforts of the original secular Jews a manifestation of the mitzvah of Harashim and Ta'aretz V'yishavtimba. And what Rav Cook ended up concluding and teaching is that even if you have a generation of secular Jews who completely disavowed and dismissed and disregarded all core aspects or even secondary aspects of Torah, they were holding on and embracing one of the most important aspects of Torah, and that was Yishuv Eretz Yisrael, settling in the Israel for all of the Jews, for all of the Klau, which I'm going to come back to. So Cook's embrace of secular Jews, Judaism, secular Jews, was not only an embrace of Abbat Yisrael, which of course he embodied, he personified. He actually saw the secular Zionist, even anti-religious movement returning to Israel as a form of an expression of a reflection of a manifestation of the mitzvah of Torah of, of, of Eretz Yisrael, of Yishuv Eretz Yisrael. Very important aspect. Because um, that would also mean, as it's interpreted by Rav Cook and then later generations, that every aspect of, of Jewish sovereignty in the land of Israel is a form of a mitzvah. It's very different for Jews living outside the land of Israel to consider a, a sovereignty or a civil society 
as being part of a religious direction. In fact, living in America, uh, I, you know, as, as, you know, I can't speak for England, but living in America with the separation of church and state, it almost seems like it's antithetical to what many American um, uh, Democrat principled thinkers have presented because you have to separate church and state. What makes it complicated is that living in Israel is an expression of, of religious life and settling the land. And, and he would go as further saying, it's what even fighting, obviously fighting for the land would be a mitzvah, besides that it's pikuach nefesh, and besides that it's defending Jewish people from the uh, the attacks of enemies and saving lives. But there was also an aspect of a mitzvah assay of fulfilling a positive commandment. Um, Rav Cook wrote about athletics and that strong minds and strong souls need a strong body. By the way, he was he received blistering criticism because people misinterpreted his words as if he was saying that the soccer on Shabbat would be permitted. He was endorsing soccer as a sport to physically train and strengthen the Jewish people. What he was doing was he was creating a kind of a parallel universe. He was saying that there's a universe of Jews in Israel and there's a universe of a person and the world. And he went on many times to say that we living in the diaspora for thousands of years have taken the physical aspect of the Jewish people and it has weakened us. It has taken away the drive of the Jewish persona to become strong and independent and resolute because we survived on our intellect and our instincts and we survived as remaining hidden. He says, Jews don't re survive by being hidden. We, we don't thrive. We don't live. We don't, we don't excel. It was a state of, 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 of no choice, of default. So looking at the way that a physical body should be physically healthy in order to have a healthy mind and a healthy soul, which now we understand is self-care, he was comparing that to the movement of the Jewish people, moving from generations of, of, of lethargy, um, of being listless, and moving into a generation of being electrified and being motivated to physically build out from the Jewish soul. So I'll give you an example. When the Betzal Institute of Art uh, was was launched, he dedicated he he was there. For, he dedicated it, and he wrote a, a, a little bit of, of a metaphor story. He created a story. Said so a little girl was sick for a long time, and her family and the doctors were just paying all of their energy to try to heal this little child and to let her go from one day to the next. That she should drink, she should breathe healthily, she should eat, and she should just get enough strength to make it to the next day. One day she awoke and she asked for her doll. Well, Cook said that was the sign of her, re, of her rebirth. That's the renaissance. Because all of her energies until that moment was just to live. When she asked for a doll, now she was looking for creativity, imagination, and for expression. He said the Bitsal Institute of Art, which didn't ever materialize to Rav Cook's vision, but at the time, he wrote, is indicative of the, of the rebirth of the Jewish people that understand that their cultural expression is an expression of their soul. Rav Cook was a poet. Rav Cook was fearless as a leader. He took on positions that created, that both sides of the religious, anti-religious spectrum vilified him. 
He was independent. He was autonomous. He was terribly pained and, 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 and anguished by the Arab revolts and by the attacks and the, by the pogroms. But he always spoke in terms of being fair and, and, and respectful, even to enemies. No matter how many times he was vilified and how many times that he was that he was made to be marginalized, he never spoke ill publicly or privately about him. You won't find anywhere in his writings of thousands of pages where he actually speaks about a person who'll always speak about philosophy and positions. He will be critical of positions, but he would never be critical of the person. And Rav Cook took positions too that I want to share with you. One, he took a position which was against the traditional rabbinic leadership of the 18-1900s. He said that the leadership is going is missing the opportunity to understand the nature of the modern generation of the 1900s. He said people were yearning, they were pining for idealism. They were looking for a value that they could identify as their own and that should be consistent with Jewish themes, Zionism. And he said, Rob Cook wrote that the religious leadership that doesn't understand that we need to provide the ideals and the values for this generation is going to end up detaching, disconnecting, and distancing itself from the world of secular Zionists. He said the Torah is full, it's rife, it's got replete with so much goodness. We need to provide those values for the secular movement of Zionism. And I, 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 I so much of his messaging is relevant till today. It's, it's, it's so it's so obvious and it, it's so needed that the, the the Torah values that are immutable. He would never compromise the halacha. He was extremely traditionalist in his halachic positions. He was never to be considered a mekel, but his conceptual understanding of the Jewish world was so inclusive and embracing that he, by by default it was able to invite people in and give them a place at the table. Rav Kook saw a Torah starting from the Klau, just like Harsinai started with all of the Jewish people together and then went to every individual. The Torah starts, the essence of Torah starts with the community, with the great totality of Am Yisrael, not the individuals of Am Yisrael. And he was always concerned that the individual path, pathways that we're going to create for Jewish life will end up splitting and bifurcating and fracturing and fragmenting the Jewish people because it has to start from the picture of the totality of Am Yisrael. So he found that way to thread the needle, to love the Jewish people and at the same time reject what was incorrect or that was heretical. He loved the land of Israel and supported all aspects of Zionism, the southern land, but he was extremely devoted to bringing the concepts of Torah into his practice. He became the chief rabbi of Yafo in, um, the, when he landed in Kafchet Iyar, ultimately became the chief rabbi of Jerusalem. And there he lived till the end of his days when he died of cancer in 1935. His last unfortunate conflict, which were many, Hebrew University, uh, Herzl, his last was trying to defend the honor of a man of Abraham Stavsky, who was uh, accused of murdering our Lazarov. And Rob Cook said he did not commit that murder. And uh, they, at one point, they put up creeds in Jerusalem, and they said about Rob Cook, not Ela Elohecha Yisrael, which is what they said about the. Uh, they said to Aaron about the Egel Azav, "This is your God of Israel, the, the golden calf." 
they the they wrote about Rav Cook Ela Rabbanecha Yisrael, which is a play in words. These are your rabbis. It turns out Rav Cook was right. Uh, Stavsky did not kill Arlozov. He was vindicated after being conv convicted and going to be uh, and he was going to be hanged. Uh, second trial. Unfortunately, under that story was Avram Stavsky, who was one of the great. Uh, captains of illegal immigrants from uh, bringing you live to Israel to Palestine from 1940s to 1947 was killed on the Altalena uh, as the captain of that ship. I can go on for much longer with Rob Cook. I think there's a lot to say about him, but I'm on a desert island, but uh, I only probably, I don't want to make everybody uh, feel like they're on a desert island at the moment. Uh, my third book is not a book about, it's not a put person. It's much more personal. It's a sitter. And I'm, I, I assume that someone before had mentioned Sitter because uh, it's the book that um, so much defines uh, the situations of our lives, the seasons of our lives, and also the, the, the decades of our lives. Um, it's going back to a brief story. When I was a young person living in Israel, I, spent, I was invited for lunch near the old city. I guess someone saw me looking pretty forlorn and, and hungry, invited me in for lunch, and it was a Sitter in a um, in a glass in a, a glass covered um, uh, a presenting a, 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 a pre it was presented in a lucite case and it was a sitter it was a very worn and torn sitter and I asked the uh, father and mother of the house the the the, the owners of the, the people who invited me I said why is there a sitter in this lucite presenting case they said that he was a soldier in World War II and uh, when the war was over he met a nurse who was British. And um, he, they started, he courted her, they had a relationship, uh, they fell in love and decided to get married. And uh, this American GI went to England to meet uh, this, the nurse's parents. And they said, we don't know anything about you. Uh, there's no internet, there's no way to check. And uh, you're asking a hand for my daughter and I can't verify uh, anything about your family, your character, your past, or even how Jewish, who was really Jewish. So he said, I have a way to prove it to you. He he reached into his uh, army bag and he pulled out the sitter that went with him from the day he landed in Normandy until the day that they liberated Europe. And the sitter looked like it had gone through the last months of World War II with him. And when the father saw that book, the father said, yeah, that's it. You, you, you can marry my daughter. See, th this is to me what I said. I tell my children this all the time about a sitter. You know, if you're 14, your sitter is going to mean one thing. If you're 29, it'll mean something else. And when you're 50 and 60, it has a different interpretation. The words never change on a sitter. Uh, we could add new tefillah. We have Avarachamim is a recently added tefillah. The Harachamim to Perkat Hamazon. Some have added Rachamim Berechet Chaylet Tzvahaganav Yisrael V'yagena Leinu. There are minor changes in sitter over the centuries. But the reality is that sitter, Ashkenaz, and Sfard more or less remain the same. But the, the nature of the sitter goes back to what the Ramban says. It's not that the sitter needs to change. The way we look at the different parts of sitter changes and a reflective, honest, intellectually honest person could see new meaning in sitter that he or she has never seen before based on the station of life that that person is in. So if a person, even the simplest of brachot, of, of, of pokech ivrim, for someone who had an eye infection, open your eyes, or zokev kfufim, a parent who had a, a back issue and standing up straight, or, or has a revelation and an epiphany about the, 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 the omnipotence of God by saying, uh, um, um, karcho lefnei karato miyamod, 
or understanding the Siddur differently by reading a Rabbi Sachs interpretation of the sequence of brachot, of how it starts with the, the generalization of the creation of the world after Baruch Hu, and it ends with Ga'al Yisrael and seeing both the, 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 the universalism within Judaism and the particularism in Judaism without understanding the commentary to understand you can see that completely get lost. Someone who's 15 doesn't really think about universalism and particularism of Judaism. But when you see that the world, that, that we have a place and we have a, a footprint in the world, we're part of humanity, but at the same time, we're particular and we're insulated, you can find all that in the sitter. We can find all that in the sitter. And finding that in the sitter is what gives us strength and inspiration. God is both transcendent and eminent at the same time. Getting back to the Ramban. You know, Ramban wrote about visiting Kivrei Avot. We all go to the, the, the Marat HaMachpelah. And some say, well, there's no value in going to pray by the stones, the tombstones of people who died before us. Ramban said there is, because that's the place where the Avot and the Imot are buried. That's where a person goes to Davin. And if that's what you get inspiration from, then that's something a person should pursue. The whole concept of tefillah is not necessarily, not only, I mean, there, there certainly is within the words of Kabbalah and within Jewish spiritual thought, including the Ramban, that there's a way of changing decrees and changing the world, the way that God looks at the world. That's on a very high spiritual, mystical level that you can absolutely find within our traditional sources that go from the Zohar, the Ramban, all the way through to our past generations, certainly in Hasidic Torah. But putting aside the way that we could impact the world through our tefillot, we have to also look how tefillot impact us. And if a person says, I don't have a kavana for tefillot, or I'm not in the mood for tefillot, we tell the person, daven anyway. Because if a person doesn't daven, then the person loses the opportunity for that impact the next time. And that kind of impact is what inspires us to continuously moving forward. And that's very personal. So sitter is a very personal part of prayer, and it includes everything. It includes if it's your Shabbat. Rabbi Huda Levi Nakuzri says that the entire season of our calendar is created to generate and to stimulate and inspire new levels of inspiration and connectivity with the Boreolum. And that's all in the sitter. So there's Shabbat, there's Rosh Chodesh, there's Yom Tovim. Everything about it is about our own ongoing dynamic engagement. The Siddur is an ongoing dynamic engagement that we say every single day. Shachrit Mincha Marev, very interesting. Gemara says that Shachrit was Abraham, Yitzchak was created, Yitzchak created Mincha, and Yaakov created Marev. So of Amiel, who was the chief rabbi of Tel Aviv, said something very interesting. See, because Abraham created Shachrit because he was Vayashkem Abraham Baboker. He was energized. He was full of full of full of motivation and ambition, and he was always an active activist. He was always doing that. Shachrit, you wake up in the morning. Mincha, it's Vayetze Yitzchak Lasuach The sun is going down, and the the day is coming to an end. It's more reflective, of course, depending what time you have mincha and your mid station and how are you managing your responsibilities and the conflicting roles that we have. And Myrav is Yaakov is emuna and medvumuna. Yaakov always represents uh, the, this the concept of faith in tomorrow because of all of his problems. And so you have Shachat Mincha Myrav represents the days, of, the hours of the day, but also represents the different themes of the Jewish people at different times. And the more we can delve into Siddur and understand it, whether it's universalism, particularism, like Rob Sachs would say, or whether it's the kuzuri and the, the constant ebb and flow of the, uh, the nature of, of a life and seasons, of difficult times, of prayer of Tehillim, 
or the the bracha times of salvation or whether the, the happy times of smachot and life and saying modim everything we live through has its page in the sitter. So if I were on a desert island, this is what I would have. I would have my Ramban, who would inspire me to understand an in-depth appreciation of Chumash, the Avot, the Emot, Harshanut, mysticism, the love of Eretz Israel, challenges, overcoming challenges, and changing and evolving. I would get Rav Cook, who is a fearless Talmudist, genius, finished Shas every single year, seven daf a day, who is a poet, a philosopher, who had profound understanding of Boreolam, who loved every aspect of humanity, who is a universalist, but at the same time, a, a fierce supporter of the Jewish people, who loved every aspect of Am Yisrael and understood the centrality of Eretz Yisrael in the past and in the future. And I would take my sitter with me because no matter what would happen on Desert Island, if I would have to be living through a hurricane or a, a, a drought, if I would have a lot of food from my coconuts, or if I would have nothing to eat because I'd have to eat little piece blades of grass, I would find solace and comfort and hope in my sitter. Wow, such powerful, inspiring and amazing ideas and amazing Torah. Thank you so much, Rabbi Rubin, for sharing. Thank you for listening to Desert Island Torah. Feel free to share our podcast with family and friends so that we can reach out to Amisrael. And if you enjoyed that episode, please feel free to download and subscribe. And if you want to discuss your own Desert Island Torah, get in touch at desertislandtorah at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening.